Well, good morning and welcome to Sunrise. My name is Brett and I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible with you, would you please turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. If you didn't bring one, that's fine. We've got them in these black chair pockets and there should be stacks on the side, so find one near you. If you don't own a Bible, keep that one, please. We'd love for everyone to have one. So on these Sunday mornings together, we can all be following along with God's Word. Um, Matthew chapter 5, we'll be beginning in verse 38. If you're using one of the black Bibles, the paperback ones, that's page 690. If you have a gold Bible, now we're mixing, there's a, it's page 473. Um, please follow along as I read, and it should be on the screen behind me as well. Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." Would you pray with me? Father, what a gift. What a gift it is to have this time together around your word, this time where um, distractions are shut out and we're gathered together as a family here where we can focus on, on what you say, on these these incredibly precious words of your son. And yet we know that, that our minds are easily distracted. We know that our hearts can be hard and that your word will only do its work in us if your spirit comes and works. And so we ask, Father, that in your generosity, you're so good that you would send your spirit so that we can hear from you and be transformed by what we hear. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in university, I spent two summers in China. Uh, I went with a group of other college students, and we would spend our mornings studying Mandarin, and then our afternoons, we would go out and meet other local college students um, to try to become friends with them, hear about their lives, and, and share Jesus with them. Um, and so it, we weren't in one of like the big eastern cities. We weren't in you know Beijing or Shanghai. We were in the west, in these cities... That were, they were still big. I mean, it's China. It's like a million people. But, but it, was, it wasn't the kind of place where there were lots of expats around. And so if you can just imagine uh, these, this group of 20 mostly white American kids with you know, bright colored clothing, shorts, walking down these streets, we, we could not do anything discreetly. We stood out like a sore thumb. People would stop their conversations at these little shops and just gawk at us as we walked by. If we went into a dorm, um, 
if we were, you know, visiting a friend, the other kids from the floor would come and just kind of crowd into the doorway to just, just gawk at this foreign celebrity. They thought, you know, they thought, well, he's an American. He knows Tom Cruise. Like, they, there's, there can't be that many of them. So, and comparatively, there aren't. So it was just impossible for us to fit in. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been working through for the last few months, Jesus has been saying that his disciples, his followers, should be like that. It should be impossible for us to fit in. There should be such a difference in our lives that we stick out like a sore thumb. And the difference shouldn't be in how judgmental we are, how we turn up our noses at at the people who don't believe what we believe. He says that the difference should be a goodness about us that isn't an act, but flows from the heart. Now, there were religious people in Jesus' day who's going to talk about the scribes and the Pharisees, and their, their goodness was only skin deep. It was just for appearances. But Jesus says in verse 20 of chapter 5, which we've looked at a few weeks ago, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't be a fake. You have to have righteousness from the heart. And then he gives six examples to show how deep the change must be. He said, you know, when, when you think about the commandment, thou shalt not murder, he said, it's not, it's not enough to just not kill anybody. You can't even be angry or contemptuous towards people in your heart. It's not enough just not to commit adultery with your body. You have to be totally faithful to your spouse in your thoughts and in your imagination, in your desires. He says, we must be people of integrity who speak truthfully, who keep our promises. And today we're going to see that the pinnacle of what Jesus is calling us to, that which will mark us out absolutely as his followers, is the way we love those who harm us and hate us. We're going to see in this passage two qualities of the love Jesus desires for us, the love he demands of us, two qualities of it, and two ways to get it. And you have an outline on the back of your bulletin. The first quality of it is that love takes no vengeance. Look at verse 38 again. He said, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So Jesus is here quoting from the Old Testament, a phrase that is famous that appears at least three times, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's the principle of proportionate justice, right? So if you destroy somebody's eye, you forfeit your own. You end somebody's life, you forfeit your own. And, and that sounds, it could sound barbaric and harsh today, but here was what it was meant to do. It was meant to guard against injustice and to prevent escalation. So it guards against injustice in this way. Now, if there wasn't really a standard, if there wasn't this kind of ironclad rule, then, then it, it's possible that like, you know, a, a poor person who has no advocate has done something against the landowner they work for, and they just get this harsh sentence because who's going to stand up for them? But the rich person, well, they, they do so much for the community. You know, it's really the first thing he's done like this. I think maybe just a slap on the wrist will be done. And, and Jesus says, or God has said, no, there's going to be one rule for everybody, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. There's no sliding scale. And it was meant to prevent escalation. So I've, I've been reading, I like to read history. I was reading recently, there was this, uh, in the 19th century, in the Appalachian Mountains of the United States, kind of the southeast, there was this really strange number of family feuds happening in, in these small towns. And, and they all kind of started the same way. So you just imagine a small town with like two prominent founding families. We'll call them the Joneses and the Smiths, okay? And so you have 
one day a Jones insults a Smith. And so then a Smith burns down a Jones barn. And then some Joneses think they're going to get back. They're going to rob the Smiths. They ambush them. There's, a, there's a, a shootout. Somebody gets killed. And all of a sudden, this whole town is just consumed with a battle, a war between families that started because somebody insulted somebody, right? It's, it's this massive escalation. And that's what an eye for an eye prevents. It, it's not, you know, you, you knock out my eye and I knock off your head. It's an eye for an eye and then it's done, right? It, it prevents these blood feuds. And, and this command, it wasn't given to individuals. It wasn't saying, well, if, if, he hurt, if he knocks out your tooth, you go knock out his. It was given to judges and to courts. So it wasn't like you're just fighting back against each other. You'd come to someone and say, this is what happened. And then the judge would want witnesses to make sure that it really had happened. They'd weigh a sentence and then they'd, they'd execute it, right? It, it wasn't just, you just come back against somebody who wrongs you. But the Pharisees had taken, in Jesus' day, they'd taken this measure of justice and they use it to justify vengeance. They'd say, this person wronged me, and I'm going to hit him back because, as the good book says, an eye for an eye, right? They, just, they were just using it to, to execute vengeance. And I think we've probably all felt the pull of that, too, right? We, we know the feeling of being wronged, being treated poorly or gossiped about or betrayed, even just, like, cut off in traffic. And, and what do we say? We say, oh, you're not going to get away with that. We say, turnabout is fair play, Right? But we try to convince ourselves that fairness is what we're really concerned about. We say, it, it was wrong what they did. It was unjust. I am the innocent sufferer. But the easy test for that is to ask, well, do, do you get this upset when it happens to somebody else? Probably not. What really bothers us isn't that it happened, but that it happened to us. We deserve better. We're going to get even. We want vengeance. And Jesus says, that's not how we live in my kingdom. That's not love. He says in verse 39, but do not resist the one who is evil. And he's not saying don't defend people being treated unjustly. He's not saying in my kingdom we just let everybody do whatever they want no matter who gets hurt. No, he's saying don't return evil for evil. When evil is done to you, respond by doing good. And then beginning in verse 39, he gives four examples to kind of flesh out how this might look. So in verse 39, he he says, imagine you've been struck on the cheek. Okay, this isn't, this isn't a punch. It's a slap across the cheek. It's a backhand. It's not an attack. It's an insult. It's saying you're nothing. It's, it's contempt, right? He says, imagine you've been publicly insulted. Now, what would anyone in that situation want to do naturally, right? We'd want a cheek for a cheek, right? An insult for an insult. We want to hit back. And he says, no, turn the other cheek. Instead of responding in kind... Make yourself vulnerable to further insult. No vengeance. Or in verse 40, he says, imagine that you're in debt. That you have this huge debt, and you're so poor, you can't pay it off. You can't pay your debtor back. And so he decides to take you to court and sue you for your clothing. He's going to take you for everything you have. He's going to literally take the shirt off your back. Now, what would we naturally want to do in that situation? Well, we'd want to steal back from him, right? We Maybe burn his crops, Give him a taste of his own medicine. And Jesus says, no. If he sues you for your shirt, give him your coat too. Or another picture in verse 41. He says, now imagine that you're under military occupation. And the, the Jews of the time were under the Romans, right? They were under military occupation. And it was legal for them for a Roman soldier to come to a citizen and say, 
I want you to carry my bag a mile. I'm, I'm tired of carrying it. It's too much for me. You know, I'm your overlord, so come carry this thing with me for a mile. And so in, in that situation, we'd probably grumble. We'd probably do just a halfway job. Maybe if we were brave, we'd see if we could find a way to just pretend to trip and drop his bag on the ground. And Jesus says, if he makes you go one mile, go the mile you have to, and then go an extra mile. Or finally, in verse 42, he says, imagine yourself being begged for money or asked for a loan from someone you knew would never repay you. Now, you might say, well, this doesn't seem like a very good investment. I, I have to think about myself. I have to think about my, my family. Jesus says, give. Now, he's not saying you have to give to everyone who ever asked you. He's not saying if you're in the Foster's parking lot and someone asks you for a few dollars for lunch that you have to give them your car keys. He's not saying you have to, you know, give away all the money that God has provided for you for providing for your children. But he's, he's addressing the posture of our hearts. When someone asks us for something, is our impulse to do good if we can, or is our impulse to protect ourselves and what we have? He's saying, do you want to know what kind of love will absolutely stand out, will show the world that there's real truth and power in Christianity? It's the kind of love that, when you have the opportunity to hurt someone who hurt you, to even the scale or turn the tables, you swallow the wrong done to you, and you do good to them instead. And you might be saying, come on, what you're suggesting is impossible. Who could live like that? But what I want you to see is that this life Jesus is describing isn't a burden, it's freedom. Why do we seek vengeance? It's because there's something in our lives so important to us that we can't live if we don't protect it. So our reputation is so precious to us that if someone insults us or demeans us or talks bad about us to our boss, we, we can't eat or sleep or enjoy our family until we set the record straight. Or our money is so precious to us because it gives us security that if something endangers that, if we're defrauded, if we, we lose it in, in, a, in a deceptive way, we, we can't rest until we get it back. If we're seeking vengeance, it means there's something in our lives that absolutely controls us, that, that we can't not serve it. It's an idol. It's a rival to God in our hearts, and it enslaves us. We just can't let things go. And Jesus is saying, I can make you so free. I can change you that until nothing but love controls you. I can make you so different that you could be wronged, and you could be more concerned about the person who wronged you this person made in God's image than you are about yourself and what had happened to you. Doesn't that sound better? Now, remember, Jesus is not saying you need to stop caring about justice. He's not saying if you're in danger, you shouldn't call the police, just let whatever happens to you happen to you. He's not saying if you're being discriminated against, you can't make a legal appeal. He's saying you need to be done with vengeance, done with hatred. So imagine that your boss absolutely dresses you down in front of people whose good op opinion you really want. And instead of then speaking ill of her behind her back, you go to her and say, it seems like I've let you down somehow. How can I be a better member of this team? You just refuse to return evil for evil. Or imagine that you've requested vacation time and it's denied. And now you have to come and work when you were planning to be away. You could come in and grumble and just do kind of a halfway job to show your protest of it. Or you could come in and just be as grateful and diligent as you ever are. Or imagine that your spouse says something hurtful and totally out of line, and instead of responding in kind, 
You just say, I love you, I respect you, and I want to talk about this later when we both cooled off. Can you imagine being that free? That's what Jesus makes possible. And he says that hate, love isn't just not seeking vengeance, but it motivates us to do good, positive good, to those who hate us. The second quality of love is love treats enemies like family. Look at verse 43. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So what Jesus quotes here is a twisting of the Old Testament law. In Leviticus 19.18, the law said, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the Pharisees had asked, well, who's my neighbor? Well, it's people who are like me. It's, it's other Jews. We have, to, we have to love each other, but we can and we even should hate our enemies. And Jesus says, no, you have to love even your enemies. So you guys remember, there's this time where a law expert came to Jesus, and he asked him, who is my neighbor? And Jesus told him a story. He said, a Jew was on his way on the road, and he was attacked by robbers. And two other Jews saw him in the road, left for dead, and passed him by. It was a, a priest and a Levite. And then somebody stops. And you guys, you guys remember who stops? A Samaritan, right? A foreigner, an enemy. And what was the point of that story that Jesus told? His point was, even your enemy is your neighbor when they're in need. Anyone you can help, you should. That's what he says here. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Someone might be consciously seeking to destroy you, destroy your career, break up your family. Someone might ridicule your beliefs. And Jesus says, you should do the absolute most loving thing imaginable. You should pray for them. You should go before God, a God they may not even believe in, and plead with him to do good to them. Not after they stop, not after they say that they're sorry, but while they're still your enemies, while they're still persecuting you. Now, do you have an enemy? Is there no one who just doesn't like you, who wants your job and would be glad to see you out of it, who holds a grudge against you, whether fairly or not? Is there no one who thinks what you believe is silly or immoral or dangerous? Is there no one you just don't like whom you'd be glad to be done with? Someone, anyone who you fantasize about telling off or making look ridiculous? No one you just can't be civil around? Is there no one whose political beliefs you hate so much that you started to hate them a little bit too? Is there no one you'd be happy to see a little miserable for once? Jesus is saying, if you want to show the love that marks my kingdom, you have to proactively do good to that person. Bless them. Pray for them, because love, real love, treats enemies like family. Look at verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? If you only love people who are like you or who love you back, that's not real love. Now, in the return of the Jedi... Luke Skywalker goes to Jabba the Hutt's palace to try to free Han Solo, who's been frozen in carbonite. I know you all remember. You don't have to confirm that by nodding. So Luke Skywalker comes to Jabba, and Jabba drops him into this pit where there's this giant monster called the Rancor, who you know, tries to eat Luke, and Luke is able to 
kill the rancor by dropping this giant gate on its head. You guys, this is, I know, I know. And then, it's, this is fascinating. After that scene, it cuts to a, to a shot of the guards in Jabba's palace. And these guys are, they're green. They look like kind of pigs with horns and this, this massive underbite. And they're weeping and consoling each other. Why? Because even monsters love each other. Love for people like you is easy and feels good, but loving someone who harms and hates you, that's so much deeper and so much more beautiful. Elizabeth Elliot, I've mentioned before, her husband Jim was uh, killed by a, a tribe in Ecuador he was trying to reach with the gospel. He was speared to death, along with four other men. And two years later, Elizabeth, having learned their language, moved with her daughter in with the tribe that had killed her husband to continue his work of sharing the good news about Jesus. Now, isn't that beautiful? Doesn't that stand out? In a world as divided as ours, if we could love like that, wouldn't that bring glory to God? And this is an area where Christians have done Christianity a disservice. People look at us, and and they don't see us loving our enemies. They see us loving each other and relating to people outside the church either with indifference to their suffering or contempt for their lifestyle. What a non-Christian friend or neighbor or coworker should be able to say to us is, even though I know that you think the way I'm living is wrong, and even though I know that you think I should believe what you believe, you have always been kind and fair and good to me. People today think there are really only two options. Either you can have narrow religious beliefs, like the Bible is true and Jesus is the only way to God, or you can be people of kindness and tolerance. And Jesus is saying Christians ought to be inexplicable to people who believe that because we can hold our beliefs firmly and deeply love people who disagree with us and stand for things we think are wrong and even harmful. And one person who understood this more than most was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who in his short life experienced betrayal, false accusation, imprisonment, stabbing, and continual death threats. And this is what he said on this passage from the Sermon on the Mount. He said, When the opportunity presents itself for you to defeat your enemy, that is the time which you must not do it. There will come a time in many instances when the person who hates you most, the person who has misused you the most, the person who has gossiped about you the most, the person who has spread false rumors about you most, there will come a time when you will have an opportunity to defeat that person. It might be in terms of a recommendation for a job. It might be in terms of helping that person to make some move in life. That's the time you must do it. That is the meaning of love. That's it. If your enemy is in need, do for them what you would do for family. Where does love like that come from? Jesus gives us two sources. First, love by looking to eternity. Look at verse 46 again. He says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? He said there's a kind of love that gets a reward, and there's a kind of love that doesn't. And he's picking up a theme from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you, if you look back at chapter 5, verse 3, this is the Beatitudes. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He goes on, on. If you look down at verse 11, 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. What's happening here? Well, in the Beatitudes, Jesus is saying that people who belong to him could expect hardship in this world, but that there's a reality beyond the world, an eternal kingdom to which they belong through trusting in him. And in that kingdom, all wrongs will be made right. Those who mourn shall be comforted. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be satisfied. Those who are rejected here will be welcomed there. So this is the confidence that Christians have. In the end, God will make everything right. No wrong done against us will go unaddressed. And no good that we do here, even if we think nobody sees it, even if it's totally not reciprocated, no good deed will go unrewarded. Now, heaven and hell have gotten a bad rap recently because they seem to many people like tools used to manipulate people. The view is that Christianity says, well, you have to do what we say or you're going to go to hell. Or um, if you, you just have to be like us and then you can come to heaven. And that's not Christianity at all. Christianity says we all deserve hell because we've all rejected God and lived for ourselves. But Jesus took hell for us on the cross. So if we trust in him, we're forgiven and we begin to belong to the kingdom of heaven now. So God doesn't use heaven and hell like a stick or a carrot. He gives eternal life to us as a gift that we receive by faith and that gift transforms our life here and now. So the idea of a final judgment, the idea of an eternal world is incredibly freeing and here's how. Because why do we take revenge? We take revenge because we feel like if I don't do something about this, no one will. But God says, vengeance is mine. I am a perfect judge. I will right every wrong. Let me worry about justice. You worry about becoming a person of love who is not eaten up by bitterness and hatred. God's judgment frees us from feeling like we have to get even. And more than that, it gives us a motivation to love people who don't love us back and maybe will never love us back. Because if you love someone just because there's something you want to get from them, you love them because you want to change them, as soon as you decide that there's no hope for change, your motivation to love them is gone. But if your motivation is to please God, to be commended by him, to be rewarded by him, then it no longer matters how they respond. You're free to keep loving. So looking to eternity is one way we can grow to show this kind of love, and a second is even more powerful. We love by learning from our Father. Look again at verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, Jesus does not say, love your enemies so that you may become sons of God. He's already our Father in heaven. He says, love your enemies that you may be sons of your heavenly Father. What does that mean? Well, in the culture of that day, being a son, it didn't just mean having biological descent from somebody. It meant taking on the family resemblance, looking like your father. So when I take my boys to their bedroom to change out of their pajamas into their clothes for the day, and one of them says, I want to wear my Star Wars t-shirt. I say, that's my boy. Now, they, he didn't become my son by putting on the shirt that makes him look like me. He already was my son, but by wearing a t-shirt that I approve of, it 
He, he is my son. Does that make sense? He takes on the family resemblance. That's what Jesus is saying. If you love your enemies, you'll be like your father who loves his enemies. God sends sun and rain on the evil and the unjust. Now, sun and rain are the necessities of life in a farming culture, right? You can't have any food if you don't have sun and rain. And God pours both out in indiscriminate generosity on the world. Do you think that God, if he wanted to, do you think he couldn't only send sun and rain on people that he loves? I mean, people that that love him back? Do you think that he couldn't be that selective? Of course he could, but he doesn't. God is so unbelievably good to people who don't love or trust him. Every day, people who don't love God have all their material needs met. They have happy marriages and healthy kids. They get promoted. They live into their 80s. And that says nothing about their goodness. It says it's all about God's goodness. He generously loves people he knows will never love him back. And if God can love people so generously who are not his children, can't we love people generously who are not our brothers and sisters? Jesus says in verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And he doesn't mean sinless. That won't ever happen in this life. He means whole, complete. Become people of complete love. Not just for people who are easy to love, but for everyone. And for that, we need one thing more. More than a reward, more than an example, we need power to change. And this passage shows us where to find that too. Think back on verse 39. Remember where he said, you, you, when you're struck on the cheek, you must turn the other. When, you, when you're sued for your shirt, give them your coat. I mean, who was it ultimately? Ultimately, who was it who was mocked and beaten and struck on the face and didn't lash out in return? He told us to be ready to part with our tunic and cloak if someone wants it. Whose clothes were stripped from him and gambled over while he died? Who was forced to carry a great load, his own cross, to the place of execution? Who ultimately loved his enemies and prayed for those who were persecuting him, who were murdering him? This passage is a portrait of Jesus. The only way we can become people like this is by trusting in the one who did this for us. Jesus absorbed the ultimate injustice for us. He died. He, the sinless son of God, died in the place of sinners, and he offers us not just full forgiveness of all our wrongs, but also the help of his Holy Spirit to love those who wrong us. Our Father loved us, his enemies, by giving us his Son. And when we see the beauty of that love and accept it for ourselves, we'll be able to show that love to others. And when we live like that, people will see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are, we are struck again by the depth of your love for us, that you, you came into the world for this. You were born to die. You came intending to rescue a people at the cost of your own life, and you did it gladly. There was a joy set before you, the joy of bringing a rescued people into the presence of your Father, and for the joy set before you, you endured the cross, despising the shame. You did it for us. 
you loved your enemies and you made us your family and we want to love our enemies too. And so I ask, Father, that just as we're praying, as we're singing, that you would be bringing to mind specific people who have wronged us. Maybe, maybe it's a spouse who said something cutting this morning before coming to church. Maybe it's someone at work. Maybe it's someone in our family, our extended family. Maybe it's someone online. There's someone, God, that it's so hard for us to love and we need your power to change. And I pray that you would work in our hearts such that we can extend to people that we think, we think don't deserve it, extend to them the kind of love that you showed us when we didn't deserve it, and that in that, you would be seen and known and praised. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.